It's Inside the World of Duotone. I'm Lewis Cratton, and on this podcast today, we are speaking to the designer, one of our kite designers, all the way from Hawaii. Welcome to the show, Ken Winner. Hello. Thank you for joining us. This is quite some time distance that we, we've done here. I'm at 9 p.m. and you're at 10 a.m. in the morning. That's correct? That's absolutely right. Well, we want to know all about you, Ken, and certainly I do. So I don't know the full story on exactly what you do, but I know you've been part of uh, the Duotone family for quite some time with designing, and we're going to really get into that as the conversation goes on. But I really want to know that, you know, a bit about your history, really. You've been in the wind sports business as an athlete. That's something that is going to be interesting as well to talk about. But and a designer for decades. So perhaps maybe you could give us an overview of your career. Sure. I grew up doing some sailing. Uh, my dad uh, owned boats, cruising boats. And uh, so I fell in love with sailing at an early age. I, At the age of 20, I saw windsurfing and I bought a used windsurfer. So uh, that was 1975. Taught myself to windsurf. Um, and uh, enjoyed it so much. It's pretty much the only thing I wanted to do. A lot of people, I think, have that story. And uh, started going to competitions, which I enjoyed doing. Started doing well in competitions. And, racing? Uh, or free- freestyle racing? Well, there was only racing at that time. Uh, freestyle wasn't really a part of the competition scene until 1976. And, um, you know, I was a little on the heavy side for windsurfing in the early days. Uh, I might have weighed 165, 165 pounds, something like that. And the people that had an advantage in light wind were much lighter than I was. And so while I could do well in stronger winds, um, the lightweight riders would do well in lighter winds. And I, sort of had this deep hunger to win. So I reasoned to myself, well, maybe I won't be competitive in light wind racing, but I could be competitive in light wind freestyle. So I tried to improve my freestyle skills. And in 1977, I won the American freestyle competition, which earned me free airfare to Sardinia for the world championships. And in the World Championships in 77, I won the long-distance race, the slalom and the freestyle, and finished top few in the racing. don't remember exactly. No, I didn't win the racing, but uh, that earned me the overall world title in 77. So, um, you know, wow. two races, slalom and long-distance, I won, and then the freestyle, I won. And, and you went all the way to you went to Sardinia. Whereabouts did you go in Sardinia? It's a place I I love very much. It was in the north, um, and <laughs> the name of the place escapes me. But it was a brand new, uh, recently developed area in the north of Sardinia. Portopolo, I think that might have been. That sounds right. Yes, supposedly something the Aga Khan had funded. So you started with competition, and how did that? How has that developed into into what you do now? Have you, have you always been into design? So I know that you're very much uh, involved with designing um, some of you know the well-known kites with Duotone. Certainly, the Rebel mm. has got your DNA 
in this car? How have you moved from competing at such a, a high level? You know, we're talking like top level in the world to 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 getting into your roles that you have now. Well, it it, it kind of came um, with sort of naturally with the evolution of windsurfing because at first we were on one design windsurfers and the only thing you could do to improve was to improve yourself. So I worked on improving my skills. And uh, so, for example, in 1980, I won the overall title in the Windsurfer Worlds. But then by 1981, we were pretty heavily into modifying, building our own equipment, really. And so in 1981, there was a race in Kailua, Hawaii, where we could race basically unlimited equipment. We didn't have to stick with the one design windsurfer. Mm-hmm. And so we had the race called the Pan Am Cup in 81, which which I won. And that's sort of a high-wind-oriented event where all the sort of top racers from Europe and America and Asia and Australia who wanted to perform in high wind would race in that event, and they could use whatever equipment they wanted to use. Um, and I built my own board for that race, uh, which which wasn't a great board, but it was good enough. And good so enough that's to win. I, yeah, that's where I started with um, you know, sort of divine, designing equipment for for the water sports that I did. I also built some very small waveboards, which were pretty early for that time also. Nobody was riding, say, Hokipa on an 8.6 waveboard at that time. Um, but that's what I brought to Hokipa in 1981. And so my emphasis gradually shifted from trying to improve myself because I was getting older and um, by 86 I was pretty much done with the World Cup I had, my rating had dropped I got fourth in the world that year so and I was and I had a young child so I decided to quit racing and um, but I did continue working on improving equipment trying to improve equipment uh, and that's sort of where I've gone ever since uh, the late 80s is uh, design. So it was a natural for me when we got into, when kiting came along, it was a natural for me to um, get into kiting and try to improve kiteboarding equipment. What interests me here, Ken, is that you're obviously passionate about the sport and you were at a very high level, such a high level actually, fourth wasn't good enough <laughs> you said it your ranking dropped to four so you your focus switched but um certainly having children myself i know just how focused you need to be if you're going to be at the top of your game but my question for you now really is did you always have a passion for design when you were young when you was at school have you got that sort of engineering brain or, or did it just come from somewhere where it even surprised you when i was a kid i built a lot of my own toys. So I suspect um, that's a big part of it. I, what sort of toys? Oh, things like little carts to ride down the hill on, um, you know, slingsh- uh, not slingshots, but uh, catapults for catapulting things a distance. Um, things that to, took know. some thought. You had to actually think about how they worked and... How you could do it. Yeah. How, how old were yeah. you when you were doing this? Oh, eight, nine, ten, eleven. And at school, uh, did you start? Did you study anything at school or college or or university about design? 
No, uh, windsurfing short uh, circuit at any, I mean, I was in college when I started windsurfing and then I didn't really want to do anything else. I reasoned that I could always go to college, but I couldn't necessarily windsurf at a high level. Uh, so I quit school and started windsurfing all the time. And fortunately, I, I, I can learn on my own pretty easily. So I do a lot of reading and, uh, that, for example, I taught myself to use computer design tools and, um, I think it's a great message, uh, Ken. I think it's sorry to interrupt you. I think there's a, it's a lovely message that sometimes you don't always have to go down the path. I mean, it definitely can help in life a lot when you study the right things to get where you need to get to in life. But, but equally, um, just like your example, it's not absolutely necessary to have all those degrees in everything that's totally you might think you need to actually go and be in the workplace at doing something that, that you're doing yourself. Now, how long you're, you're been... let me let me just say you're absolutely right and nowadays with so much information on the internet you can you can gain so many skills and learn so much without going through any uh, sort of formal training or educational program it's it's pretty astonishing but go ahead i interrupted you please no no it was, it was nice to get your fit your um your feelings on that and it's maybe i'd like to elaborate is that certainly from uh a life in water sports myself so far I didn't go to university and I think there's lots of pressure on young people to go and study and learn everything about the the job that they dream of and sometimes the attention is actually taken away from the, the experience that you'd get from football well, life experience how important that is but also actually just doing the work itself you know I think it's possible to be too overqualified sometimes I agree, and sometimes the the thing that's con, that's called overqualified isn't really all that qualifying. Okay, next question. Sorry, I'm just looking. I've got two cats here that are about to have a full blown scrap behind me. Right when I'm, and if I shut them out the room, there'll be a pain in the ass for the door. So I'm just shooing mm-hmm. them out the room. Billy and Bobby. Next question for you, Ken. So. How long have you been part of the Duotone team and been designing for Duotone? So, uh, Boards and More is the parent company of Duotone. And the guy um, I worked with to start the kite brand for Boards and More is David Johnson. And he was the distributor for Boards and More in North America in you know the turn of the century around the year 2000 so david johnson and i got together and we started the boards and more kite brand at that time so i was he asked me to design kites and i said well i don't know how to design kites but i can help you find somebody to design kites um so we found a guy and um the day after he said he would do it, he said he wouldn't do it. <laughs> and then we found another guy who didn't work out. I ended up uh, going to Sri Lanka and going to China and um, 
when I was in China, the, the guy who was supposed to be designing the kites didn't send any patterns. So I had to sort of decide either I go home without succeeding or I figured out myself. So I spent, uh, I think, four weeks in China working 16 hours a day, uh, figuring out how to design kites. And, uh, and the, the kite that resulted from that turned out to be not too bad. And, um, uh, so I just stuck with that, with that job, designing the kites. And roughly how, how well, when was the start of Boards and More? Forgive me. I don't even know that answer. Well, well Boards and More, uh, yeah, I don't know exactly, but, you know, over the years, Boards and More has owned all the, a lot of major windsurfing brands like Mistral and F2 and Fanatic and, um, and North. North Windsurfing. So uh, Boards and More goes back into the 80s or 90s. Quite some time um, then. Yes, yes. And um, I would I would like to know also, Ken, for which products? I mentioned the Rebel at the start of the podcast. I would love to know what, what other products that you are responsible for for Duotone. So we started with <clears throat> our first kite is called the Rhino. We followed that up with, with an, continuing the animal theme with the Toro. And, I remember it. Yeah, and then we uh, we moved on to the, the Rebel in the Vegas, and we introduced the Mono, the Neo, um, the Juice. So I worked on all of those kites, and um, and then more recently. Uh, to free up, well, yeah, more recently I started working on hydrofoils, so I designed some of our hydrofoils. And then most recently I started working on wings. And um, over, this, over the years I've turned more work over to other designers. So that would free up my time to do, uh, you know, to do the stuff I do. And which kites exactly are you responsible for on the kite side of things? Right now? Did- yeah. None. <laughs> oh, okay. oh, wow. no, I, so I, I help, I help our other designers. I have the most experience uh, kite designing, probably of anybody in the world. So when we have other guys we want to bring on as kite designers, they can come to me with questions about how to, you know, how to use the software and what kind of effects different changes in kites are going to have on kite performance. So. Sky, for example, Sky Solbach has taken over design of the Neo. And one of the interesting things about Sky is I've been working with him for about 18 years. And through that time, we've, we've discussed everything about pretty much everything about kite design and a lot about kite software. And so even though he's only been doing it for maybe six months full time, he is probably one of the most experienced kite designers in the world because he's kind of been at it for 18 years. Um, so my focus nowadays is on helping our other designers and on improving wing designs. So I've got primary responsibility for wings. How does the design process work? You know, so easy to sit here and hear you talk about that you're part of the design team and you work with people, but I always wonder how... How does it work? You spoke briefly about the, you know, CAD and software that you need to use, but how do you really 
you know, how, how would you explain that to someone listening and think, how do you go about designing a kite or, or a foil or a wing or anything like that that you're experienced in? With kites, the process goes all the way back to 20 years ago when, or 23 years ago when we were first designing our first kites. We, we looked at what was out there. And at the time, there were two brands, I guess, Wipica and, and Nash. Yeah. And we, we tried, we basically just looked at what they were doing and we said, okay, we need to do something like that. And at the time, I didn't have any kite dedicated design software. So I just used standard off the shelf, uh, CAD software, this program called Rhino, which is, uh, pretty popular in the world today. Is sorry to and, interrupt here, Ken, but please tell me, is that where the kite name come from? It, no, it didn't. That was, oh, okay. uh, David, John, David Johnson and I basically started the boards of Mark Kite brand, and he was the guy who was more into marketing, and he wasn't even aware of what software I was using. So he just liked that name, I guess. I like, I, you know, I think the reason was that kites of the time had mylar uh, leading edge tubes and struts, and the mylar was not very robust. We used Dacron, which is a much more robust material. And uh, we wanted to emphasize the facts, the fact that our kites were more durable than the competition. And I think that's, that was the motivation for using the Rhino name. And sorry, elaborate as well. You were, you were, before I interrupted with the name of the Rhino, you were explaining how the design process starts or started back then with using that software. Yeah, so we started just trying to make something similar to the existing kites, but we wanted to make them more durable, more reliable. So uh, it was, you know, looking at what was working and trying to make something similar um, and incrementally better. And then over the years, that's basically what we've been been doing. We take what we have and we try to figure out what would make it better. For example, what would make it turn quicker or what would make it jump higher or what would make it... Um, relaunch easier. And, you know, we, we, over time, we come to understand the geometry of the kite better and how those uh, aspects of its geometry affect its performance in the air, the different elements of its performance in the air. And uh, so we will make a new prototype, test it, evaluate it, see how it works, and then go from there to make a new prototype. And it evolves gradually over now almost a quarter of a, a century we've evolved these shapes to do specific things so for example uh, take the neo for example uh, the neo is designed to be a wave kite it's designed to drift well one aspect of drifting well is leading edge diameter we don't want to make the leading edge diameter of neos a lot smaller even though we could uh, because that would hurt the drifting capability of the neo so there are you know dozens of uh, issues like that that we we think about and, and try to optimize. Talk about we here, Ken. I know you've mentioned Sky, but um, is there anyone else uh, a part of the the Maui crew that are involved uh, on this um, on this design process? And who are they? Well, we we have uh, Patri, who's a, a really great fighter and very perceptive about how kites are performing. He does a lot of testing with us. Um, We've got uh, a number of riders 
in uh, Europe who we rely on for feedback. In the early days, we had Jaime Harais, who uh, was a really great tester and still is, although he's not in the so much in the day-to-day kite testing process. We're very fortunate that our uh, CEO, Till, is a good athlete and very sensitive to kite performance. So even, even the CEO of the company can provide really valuable uh, feedback on not only kite design, but board design, hydrofoil design, wing design, every, every aspect of the products we design. Um, he's one of the guys we can rely on to give good feedback. We have other people in the company uh, who aren't like, who aren't the, the top writers such as yourself, but who, um, and who have office jobs, but who are also um, valuable for providing feedback. It's always interested me, Ken, about um, about what you're talking about here as feedback and what is good feedback. So I'm going to imagine that you have created this brand new kite. I've tested it and my feedback to you is, sorry, I don't like it. I would imagine that's bad feedback. So could you perhaps give me an idea of what, what, what is good feedback to you and, and how do you gauge that with these people that are helping you design these kites? What's, what's a good example of good feedback? Well, I mean, if you tell me you don't like it, I would ask you, what, what about it do you not like? And then you would, you know, like you're a very perceptive and capable writer. You've got tons of experience with a variety of kites and you know what you like, you know what you don't like. So you would, you would be perfectly capable of saying, well, um, you know, the bar pressure is too high or it doesn't turn quick enough or, you know, it initiates turns well, but it doesn't follow through or, you know, it follows through. Okay. But you can't really snap it at the end of the turn. Or, you know, you might say that it's uh, too technical to jump. So there's, I mean, there's so many things, uh, so many specific things you can say to explain what about the kite you didn't like or what about the kite you did like. Um, and, and all of that is, is very easy for the designers to understand. So if you're talking to me or Sky, we'll, we'll be able to form a picture in our minds of what, a, you know, what we would want to change to try and improve uh, the stuff you don't like. Does that answer is, your question? Yeah, it does. Not fully, because I'm still, I mean, I've noticed as a, as a team rider, okay, I, I don't have a huge um, amount of time that I've spent with kite designers. It's not been the journey that I've taken uh, in my kiteboarding career, but I have been around and observed um, guys and girls that are very good at doing so. And one of those riders is Aaron Hadlow. And I've always felt that with people that work with designers that they, I mean, maybe you can confirm this, is they do, you must have a really good, you must be on the same page, right? You must be really speaking the same language because if you're not, I can't imagine you'd ever be able to communicate or or, or perhaps translate those feelings into into changes. Well, you're absolutely right. So when you said speaking the same language, that's uh, extremely important. And it does take time for the designer and the writer to to learn to communicate in the most effective way possible. Um, but I, you know, I still think that a thoughtful designer talking to you, even if you haven't been working with that designer a lot, would would be able to 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 understand what you're getting at if you if you say what aspects of the kite you like or don't like. 
but you're you're absolutely right. Having having a common vocabulary and under, and and some history of communicating effectively helps a lot. And can and can normal right? I say normal is probably not the right word. Can amateur kiteboarders also give valuable feedback? Does it have to be top professional riders, or can it can it be anyone that really helps on the design process? Yeah, re- recreational riders provide really valuable feedback. It's not necessarily in the language you want to hear. Um, it's, it's maybe not necessarily what you understand immediately, but they have the most recreational riders have the most valuable feedback possible because they're the people we want to please. Um, mm. So, I mean, I get a lot of this um, with, with, with wings, for example, you know, the, the writer might say he doesn't like the leading edge handle. And uh, that that's really important. Even if it's not important to me, it's important to him. So I have to pay attention. So it's not always how you totally feel. Have you ever been in that position where you think this is the best product I've ever created in my life and, and other people don't like it? Um, yeah, you, you do get really um, surprising feedback sometimes. You know, something just doesn't suit a person and and there's no accounting for taste. <laughs> and to some extent, it's like music. A lot of a lot of really popular music I can't listen to at all. <laughs> and yet it's really popular music. So it doesn't mean the music's bad. It means that there's something different about me. And, you know, the same applies to any uh, product where there's, it's very personal. Um, some people just aren't going to like something that other people do like. I think that's a very good analogy, music, actually, because it is, very clear and obvious that you could have a really incredible piece of music and not everybody would like it. And that really sums it up that everybody is different. And that's that's exactly the same in the water sports industry as well with the equipment. We're going to move on here and talk a little bit about the equipment and certainly some of the, the major changes over the last five years, for example. We've had new materials influencing the sport. And how how have materials like Alula really influenced your work, Ken? Well, they, you know, there's the potential for amazingly better performance with the uh, the lighter, stiffer materials, um, and it's a little bit frustrating that you can't just use the newer materials on the same old patterns and get the results you want. Hmm. Uh, it actually took me two years to figure out how to make. Alula work on the Neo because, um, you know, obviously it was immediately lighter, which was nice. So the, the kite would hang in the air better. Um, but it, it's also uh, very stiff. It's a torsionally very stiff material. And uh, so that would hinder its ability to turn. Uh, on some kite models, like the Juice, you can adjust for the stiffness by making the leading edge smaller. But on the Neo, we didn't want to compromise drift by making the leading edge smaller. So we had to figure out other ways to get the flex that we needed um, from Alula. So we had to change the bridle and we were able to adjust the diameter of the leading edge a little bit um, near the tips. And so those two changes helped a lot. 
but you know it takes time to figure out what change is going to do the trick for you. Um, so we spend a fair amount of time on that. On the subject of the NEOs, there's three models, um, as you and I both know. There's the NEO, the NEO SLS, and the NEO D-Lab. Could you explain briefly, very briefly what their differences are and perhaps to what customer should should purchase either of those? Right. So the difference is in price and performance. The, the standard Dacron Neo is, uh, has, is the most affordable, and it's a little heavier than the others. Um, the Neo D-Lab is the most expensive, and it's the lightest of all. And... You know, you get a pretty considerable benefit from the lower weight and the stiffer material, and the SLS falls in between. So the SLS might be considered the the uh, sort of the best performance to price ratio, and uh, for the for the customer that doesn't care that much about price, the D Lab definitely gives better performance, and uh, anybody can benefit from it, whether a beginner or an expert. Um, and of course, the standard NEO is uh, just a, re- a really affordable, um, high-performing and extremely durable kite that you can rely on for years to come. Thank you. That's quite a nice description of it. That was absolutely perfect. So we're almost at the end of our time here, Ken. I've just got a couple more questions for you. Mm-hmm. I want to. I want to know how... I want to know how the whole wing foil development has brought uh, some fresh wind into the sport and certainly into your own life. Yeah, so uh, winging started when a few years ago, five years ago, I was trying to downwind hydrofoil paddle and my shoulders were getting sore and I wanted to see if I could maybe make something like a little inflatable wing that would get me going. And that it actually worked immediately. And I uh, tried to convince others to do it, and not many would, would take it up. Um, but after six months of trying, I convinced Boards and Mort Duotun to produce some wings. And other people caught on, and other brands started producing wings. And now we have a whole new sport to deal with. Um, personally, I really enjoy kiting still, and uh, so on a good day, particularly if they're good ways, I'll go kiting. But I also enjoy winging, so there are a lot of days I, I also go winging. And from a, from the point of view of performance, it's really hard to beat kiting in most respects, like jump height or surfing freedom. Um, it's you know, kiting is amazing. Um, but in some respects, swinging is amazing because it's uh, it's a little less demanding in terms of skills. And a lot of people who want to learn kiting have a hard time keeping, keeping the kite in the air. Mm. Um, it seems strange to us, but it's, it's true. It, it's a whole skill to keep the kite in the air and make it do what you want it to do. Yeah, you almost don't get uh, a chance to try kiteboarding at the start. You always, I don't know about you, but I watch people learning and I think, before they've even had that chance to get going on the board, the chance has been taken away from them because their kite skills aren't quite up to it yet. It takes it takes it, a while. Exactly, yeah. So with winging, I think it's a more accessible 
more accessible sport. People can get into it gradually and, and enjoy it gradually as their skills improve um, without, you know, without the challenge of managing the kite and the kite strings and the fact that with a kite you need a bigger beach than with a wing. So both both sports have their their appeal, and uh, and I enjoy both. I um, another advantage kiting has is uh, kiting with a hydrofoil. You can do it in very little wind, very easily. Um, a little more difficult with the wing. Winging you will never match kiting in that respect. Yeah, I think that completely makes sense. Um, well, I think about the Olympics and the inclusion of obviously kiting and racing. My feeling always with the Olympics is that they don't pick these venues on the wind stability and the, you know, the conditions for our sports or wind sports. It just so happens to be that, you know, it's more about which country gets the, the bid in and what their infrastructure is like. We, we come way down the list. So any sport that can really adapt to whatever wind is available and for it to look quite good and be competitive is, it's definitely something they consider. And I think the actual foils, uh, you know, really help that in both kiteboarding, windsurfing and, and winging as well. It's very accessible now. Yeah, I agree. And, and hydrofoils are so much easier uh, to ride now than they used to be. It's a huge step forward. My last question for you, Ken, as we wrap up this podcast, is simple and it is, how does it feel... How did, does it feel to be to have been born a winner? <laughs> uh, yes, um, it's, that's a that's a funny question, and um, you know, I I've never really thought about that. I I, uh, I I couldn't answer that question. No problem. There wasn't really an answer that I was after. <laughs> it was just a question. Maybe should have asked at the start of the podcast, but Ken. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us. And it was really lovely to hear your journey and your passion for what you do or, and have been doing for such a long time. Well, thank you for the opportunity. It's been uh, a pleasure talking to you.